Those eight visions of Zechariah. Can you believe it? Wow. Eye-opening to me. I'm learning things about these eight visions every single week that I study them. Something new. In order to understand the book of Zechariah, you have to put yourself back in that scene. Zechariah is there before a temple that is being built in a city that had been destroyed 70 years prior by Nebuchadnezzar. The city had been burned, literally burned to the ground. The temple had been pushed over. And now they had the task of building it because God said to build his temple. Under the political leadership of Zerubbabel, the high priest Joshua, and then Zechariah the prophet, and Haggai the prophet, the nation stirred themselves up, God stirred them up to work, and they were doing a good good thing. But, remember these eight visions. To put the eight visions in context, to really understand them, remember this morning, you have to understand Ezekiel 8-10. through There was an Ark of the Covenant in the holy place in Jerusalem. Picture, this is the Ark of the Covenant. Two cherubim right here, one on each end, the wings for each other. And in the middle, on the top of the gold plate, was the Shekinah glory of God. It was His presence on earth. We know from Ezekiel chapter 8 that there was an image of jealousy, a statue, that the nation Israel had put in the temple to worship. Now, God, will, God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. And so what happened in Ezekiel 8 through 10, as the statue stood in the temple, the very presence of God in the Shekinah glory lifted up. And I think now, as I've studied it more and more, I think the whole Ark of the Covenant lifted up. And maybe those cherubim that were gold hammered on the mercy seat, they might have become alive or something. But we do know that when the holy presence of God in Ezekiel 8-10 through left, there were two cherubim by his side. As he departed and went to the threshold, from the threshold he went to the eastern gate, from the eastern gate across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and at the top of the Mount of Olives in Ezekiel 10, the glory of God departed from planet earth and went back to heaven. God was not dwelling in the temple anymore. Nebuchadnezzar came, tore the whole thing down. So in, the, so in the eight visions, you just catch this. I want to repeat myself. I think repetition is so critical. At the end of the 70 years, the exiles from the north come back. So the first three visions of Zechariah, it's all a movement back to Jerusalem. You have the Lord telling the people, go back to Jerusalem. 50,000 exiles make their way, and they start to build the temple. So you have this. You have exiles from the north coming under the command of the Lord. You have a house being built for God, the temple, right? And then you have Jerusalem, the vision of Zechariah about Jerusalem. It cannot be measured or contained. That is how great God is. His capital city has no boundaries. He is infinite in his splendor and glory. Do you see that? Coming from the north to Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem, you have a house being built by exiles and a city that cannot be measured or contained. Then the middle visions are the high priest, vision four. The the priesthood is restored. And then the temple is built under the political leader, Zerubbabel. So you have a king-priest combination in the middle visions. And then the final three visions, you have a movement out of Jerusalem, to Babylon. The first three, the the first three visions from Babylon to Jerusalem to build a house. The last three, a movement from Jerusalem to Babylon. But what is it? It's an anti-ark 
It is an image of idolatry. And we talked, I spoke this morning about idolatry and how we tend to have idolatrous natures. Idolatry is when you have something in your life that brings you value or meaning in place of Jesus Christ. It could be beauty, it could be money, it could be a romantic relationship, it could be your family, it could be ministry, it could be any number of created things. If you find your value and meaning in those created things, and you don't find it in the Lord, then when those things are taken from you, you will just fall apart. That shows where our hearts are. And God hates idolatry. So there's a picture of a basket, and the statue of this woman, this statuette of a woman is put in the basket. There's two women with stork wings, kind of imitating the cherubim. This whole sin, is the sin of idolatry, is measured and contained, unlike Jerusalem, which is unmeasured and uncontained. And this ark, this fake Ark of the Covenant with fake angels and Satan and his idolatry is brought to Babylon. And then the last vision this morning, vision number eight, Four chariots come out of the gates of heaven, two mountains of bronze. They come to earth, and two go up north and conquer Babylon. And that's a future, that's Revelation 18. Babylon, in a 24-hour period, will fall. All idolatry and sin and rebellion will be crushed. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. What a great day, right? What a great day. Then the final part of chapter 6 was three exiles from Babylon bring silver and gold to the prophet Zechariah. He fashions an elaborate crown, real fancy kingly crown, fit for the king of kings, and he puts it on the high priest's head, which, according to the Mosaic law, would be terribly blasphemous. Levites are are priests, kings are from Judah, they never mix. But in Jesus Christ they do, because he's not a priest of Levi, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then you know the prophecy. Behold the man whose name is the branch. And that's the same thing Pilate said when he brought Jesus out before the crucifixion in front of that whole group of religious Jewish people. They knew the book of Zechariah by memory. When Pilate said, behold the man, he was literally saying, like we would say, hail to the Chief, it means the president. When he said, behold the man, every Jewish person in that audience, they knew, Pilate just quoted Zechariah, he's saying this this person who's been beaten, his beard's been plucked out, and a crown of thorns, is the Messiah of Zechariah chapter 6. His name? Branch. Another name of Branch? Netzer. He's a Netzerine. He's a Nazarene. Oh, it all ties together, one after another. Much like when I say president, you think Oval Office, you think Resolute Desk, you think, what do you think? Air Force One. I mean, you've got, those are visions of the the presidency. When, as soon as you said the word branch to a Jewish person, they thought king, crown, millennial kingdom, righteousness, lion lies down with the lamb, the child plays by a cobra's hole, and nobody's worried. That's what they were thinking when they heard the word branch. And so there's a promise. The branch is coming. The branch is coming. He will bear the glory of God when he sits on the throne. He will be a priest on a kingly throne. Both priest and king. And then it ends with, there'll be the council of peace between them both. He'll never make a wrong decision. Every decision, the Lord Jesus as high priest and as king, whatever he makes, it will always, always be right. And that's the future. 
Is that glorious? No wonder why when the Jewish people heard Zechariah talk about the return of Jesus to the throne and kicking out idolatry and then destroying it in Babylon, they were like, let's build this thing. Let's build this, let's build this temple. So they went to work. Listen, everybody. Having sat still for 16 years with just a foundation, they built the temple in four years. This massive temple called Zerubbabel's temple, they built in four years. So Zechariah 7, get this, takes place two years into its close to completion. Are you with me? Two years, Zechariah 7 is the, the date for Zechariah 7 is two years after the visions. The temple gets built in four years. We're talking two years into it. They are halfway done with this temple. So Zechariah chapter 7. Listen to what God's word says. Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Kislev. All right, so he's now getting God's word two years after the night visions. The temple is maybe half to three-fourths completed. And I bet it was spectacular. I bet. Can you picture it? Can you picture the laborers, the singing, the rejoicing? Something happens on this particular day, about two years into the building of it. It says in chapter 7, verse 2, When the people sent Sherezer with Regim Melech and his men to the house of God. Maybe it's from Bethel they came to the temple. We're not quite sure if the house of God is Bethel or if it's the temple. Um, but, here, but basically, these men are sent to Jerusalem, to pray before the Lord. That phrase, to pray before the Lord, is often the phrase used to appease God when he's angry. Moses went to pray to the Lord often to ask him, don't, don't judge the nation. Judge me, but don't judge the nation. Let them off the hook. So it's a phrase that means God is angry. We've been suffering his anger for 70 years. Let's talk to him about getting this anger off of us. All right, that's the idea. So they go to Jerusalem to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who are in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets. And here's the question. Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Wow. Here's the question, everybody. Should we weep and fast on the fifth month every year like we've been doing for many years? Kind of sounds like a legitimate question. Let's understand what this means. It means that for about 68 years, every fifth month of the year, so 68 times, they set aside a time to fast and to mourn and to weep. And they want to know, should we continue that? Well, here's what, you know what happened in the fifth month? In the fifth month, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem, started it on fire, and tore the temple down. That happened in the fifth month. The temple was destroyed the fifth month, the tenth day in 586 BC. That is all found in 2 Kings 25. All right, you guys, do you understand what happened? Remember 9-11? You remember where you were if you were old enough? I remember exactly where I was. I remember, and then now we call it Patriot Day, and we, we remember what happened September 11th. For those of you who are alive December 7th, uh, for the Day of Infamy, you remember that. And I mean, we have, like, Kennedy's assassination, November 1963. I mean, I, I was born in 67, but, you know, people remember 
You remember Kennedy's assassination? You remember um, 9-11, December 7th? These are like dates that every year, when that date comes around, we're thinking of those events, right? So the fifth month comes on the 10th day, and all the Jewish people remember, Nebuchadnezzar entered our capital, burned our city, and tore the temple down. And we're crying and weeping over it every, every fifth, 10th day of the fifth month for 68 years. The question is, do we keep that going now that the temple's back up? Now that the temple's looking great, do we still have to weep and fast and mourn? Do you guys think it's a good question? Yeah. And it deserves maybe a yes or no, and let's get on with it. Don't we love checklists? Wouldn't it be easy if God just said, do these five things and you're spiritual? Yep, all you have to do, five things and you're spiritual, no questions asked, boom. You know what? That requires no heart. So here's what God said in response to that. By the way, let me go, a little bit, let me go one step further. You're going to find that God does not answer the question until chapter 8, verse 19. He's going to drag the question out until chapter 8, verse 19, because not only did the Jewish people fast on the 10th day of the fifth month, they fasted four or three other times during the year. Over For 70 years, 68 years, they did this. Here's what they did. They fasted in the, on the 10th day of the 10th month. It was the day Nebuchadnezzar first came against Jerusalem. So they fasted on the 10th, May, 10th day of the 10th month. Did God tell them to do that? No. They did it as a remembrance that Nebuchadnezzar came first to our city on that day. They fasted on the 10th day of the 5th month because the temple was destroyed. They fasted on the 7th month because Gedaliah, the governor, was murdered. It was like a Kennedy assassination, except it was Gedaliah, the governor of Jerusalem. He was murdered. So they set that day aside, and we know that this is all in 2 Kings 25. And then there was one more time. On the fourth month, the Babylonians actually broke the wall and entered Jerusalem for the first time. So they set that day aside. So four times a day, or four times a year, for 68 years, they fasted and mourned because of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction. So the question really was, should we keep that going, or, or should we, can we get out of that? What, what do we do, Lord? What do we do? All right. Here's, there's three questions that Lord, the Lord's going to ask them, and I'm going to ask you in the next 17 minutes the same three questions. And I'll tell you what, this is not so far removed from our life here at Faith. Look at God's Word. Verse 4, here are your three questions. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying... Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, here's what God wants everybody to know. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? And it says this, for me? Why were you fasting? Were you fasting because you wanted to get close to me? Because you wanted to confess your sin and to turn to me in faith? and to have a vibrant and a, a living relationship with me? Or did you fast for selfish reasons? What's the answer? They fasted for selfish reasons. Do you know what God hates? God hates ritual without reality. He hates it. He hates ritual with, without reality. He hates gifts without the giver. He hates it when people put money in the offering plate, but their heart's not in it. He hates it when people come to church to sing his praises and their heart is far from him. It's hypocrisy. 
And so he said, you guys are asking the wrong question. It's not about should you fast or should you not fast? Should you do it four times a year? I never told you to fast. One day I want you to fast. Yom Kippur. That's the only day I ever said you need to fast for me. But you, you chose extra religious duties thinking somehow you're going to find favor with me. So go to Isaiah 58. I'm going to take you through three texts to answer these three questions. And I'm going to try to do it quickly. The first question about the fast, we're going to find the answer in Isaiah 58. 150 or so years before Zechariah. Here's what God said about fasting through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. He's going to deal with fasting and Sabbath. Do you know what both of those are? Fasting and Sabbath? Fasting is abstaining from food. Sabbath is abstaining from work. Both are things you stop doing. Just because you stop doing something doesn't mean God is pleased. Fasting and Sabbath had this in common. You actually said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this and somehow God's going to like me better. He's going to think I'm great because I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that and I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that, but other people are, but I'm not, so God must like me better than they like it. You know what I'm saying? They're playing this game because religion is a game people play. And people in our church can come and play the game. Now, I don't think by your singing and the laughter and everything, I mean, talk about genuine, I love it. That was, this was a great day. But I bet there's been times in our history when people have come with ritual and no re- reality in, wor- in worship. All right, here's what God said. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. God says, get my people's attention, blow a horn in their ear. I've got, I've got news for them. Here's the news, verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Wow, that sounds great. They sought God daily. Is there anything wrong with that? Yeah, there is. It was all outward. They went and they offered the sacrifices. They showed up at the temple. They sang the songs. They did all this. But it was all outward motions and the heart was gone. They sought him daily. They delighted to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They had a reputation of being super religious. They never missed a Sabbath. They never missed a feast day. They never missed this. They never missed that. They ask me of the, okay, they take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? They thought because of what they did, God owed it to them to respond. If that's true, who's God? They are. God said, I don't want that. That is not how you approach me. In fact, the end of verse 3 says, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. God says, in the day of your fast, I'm not pleased. You're pleased because you're thinking that your religious duty is somehow going to make me work on your behalf. That's not how I operate, God said. He operates out of grace and mercy for the humble sinner. Here's what they did. They exploited all their labors. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You know why they were fasting? They were doing this. Lord, I'm not going to eat food for the next 24 hours, and when I have this argument with so-and-so, let me win. That's fasting for debate. God, I'm going to fast for 24 hours, and then when, I, when this happens, um, Lord, bless me, not them. They were like playing a game. And God hates that. Then he goes on, You will not fast as you do this day, 
to make your voice heard on high. They loved to hear their voice. Remember what the Lord said in his first sermon? The Sermon on the Mount when he's teaching early on in his ministry? He says, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees. When they pray, they love to pray on a street corner. Why? So everybody can see them and hear them. No, don't do that because that is their own reward. You go in a secret closet in a secret place where nobody knows and you come before me and you pray and I will answer you publicly. But don't be like the Pharisees. When the Pharisees fasted, man, everybody knew. Hey, everybody, I haven't eaten food in 24 hours. I'm so religious. Can't you tell? I'm looking a little gaunt. Man, I'm feverish, but you know what? It's all for the Lord. But don't have any pity on me, really. I'm just doing this because I love the Lord. But hey, look at me. I'm fasting. I'm really hungry. You guys haven't done that, have you? I have. You know, they played that game. God said, no, when you fast, Jesus said, you anoint your face with oil. Put some fresh, (laughs) fresh oil, olive oil, so your face doesn't look so peaked. And then you go around and if, And you don't announce to everybody that you're fasting. That's true spirituality, right? It's it's a matter of the heart. And the heart was not there when they were fasting. So the question is, Lord, should we fast because the temple was destroyed and now the temple's not destroyed? Is the wrong question. The question is, where's your heart? Do you really love me? The Lord says, do you really care about me? Do you really care about my word? Now in the church... God has given us some very clear commands for the church. We're under grace, not under law. So we're not motivated by guilt or shame. We're motivated out of devotion and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But he has clearly commanded our church to do some things. And it's easy to say, oh Lord, I'm going to pick and choose what I want to do. Sorry, you can't play that game. It comes with the whole package. You're part of the church, you get the whole church group. You get the whole thing, right? See see how easy it is, is us to play the game of religion with God? So now, let's, and we could keep going in this whole thing. Um, but you read that chapter on your own. Let's go to the second question. Back to Zechariah 7. In Zechariah 7, God asks another question, not just about fasting, but he's going to turn the tables on them. They never asked this, but God's bringing it up. Zechariah 7. The second question is this. When you eat and when you drink... Do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And the answer is, yes. Eating and drinking, it refers to the seven feast days of the Lord throughout the year. Seven times God said, you get together, you offer a sacrifice, you eat of the sacrifice, you rejoice because I'm a good God and you're getting all my benefits. Remember me, seven times a year you get seven holidays. Three times the men of of Israel must go to Jerusalem and meet me in Jerusalem. That's it. All right. So when they were eating and feasting, you know what they were doing? They were eating and feasting for themselves and not for God. Here's the way it looks. Take your Bibles, go to Isaiah chapter 1. The first question is answered in Isaiah 58. The next one's answered in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to this. Boy, the first... I really wanted to go through the first nine verses, but we don't have time. Basically, he says, well, you can read it on your own. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Wow. God just called Jerusalem Sodom. Jerusalem's his holy city. Sodom was a place of sexual immorality. Sin became an accepted lifestyle. 
in Jerusalem. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. Hey, everybody. At faith, do you know what a burnt offering was? Voluntary. It wasn't required. A burnt offering was voluntary. And you could offer the size of animal that you wanted to give. If you wanted to give a small little sheep, you could give a small little sheep as a burnt offering. By the way, a burnt offering, how much meat do you get to eat? Zero. How much skin do you get to keep? How much fur? Zero. I mean, you get nothing. God gets 100%. It's just, if you want to give it, it's going to cost you, but hey, that's your offering to God. It's not required. If you really love the Lord and you had two oxen, you really, really love the Lord, what would you do? Give both to the Lord as a burnt offering. Can you imagine? You'd be, you and your wife would be hooked up to the yoke the next many years, plowing your fields with the yoke around your neck because your oxen were burnt up to God, but you love God. Is that neat? God says, what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? I don't like them. Your burnt offerings, I don't like them. Because when you're giving me your stuff, it's with the wrong heart. God cares about your heart. He cares about your motive more than anything. What did Samuel say to King Saul? To obey is, to better, is better than to sacrifice. To obey God and to love him is better than offering God a sacrifice which he commands. Isn't that amazing? You know what he really wants, you, you all? He wants your heart. He wants you to love him. Like, you know what? Melissa and I are together all the time. I mean, it's just neat. Our ministry, I'm at school a little bit, but not much. But mostly, like, my whole ministry, I'm just with Melissa all the time. When I'm not with her, I, like, I like miss her. She's not here tonight. She's, she's not feeling so well. She's got a headache, and she doesn't want it to get worse. And I'm like, I can't wait to get home to see her. I just spent the afternoon with her. But I can't wait to get home to be with her. And that's the way I want it to be with God. Like, when I'm done reading the Bible, I want to be like, oh, Lord, I got to get back in because I want to learn more about you. I want to get your heartbeat. I, I want to know really who you are and what you're doing and what's your plan for this world and, and what can I do in my neighborhood and, and what's happening at the church. And Lord, this is your church. And I mean, I, am, I want to be so concerned about what the Lord's concerned about. I, 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 want, I don't want it just to be, I'm a pastor, so I have no choice. Yeah, you know what? I'm paid to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. No, it's like, I get to do this. I, I get to open up God's word. I get to spend time saturating myself with truth. That's what God wants. The multitude of sacrifices, he, he didn't like. He didn't, he didn't enjoy. He goes on. And the fat of fed cattle, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. When you, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? When they came to offer a sacrifice, God looked at it like they were just trampling his courts. That's all they were doing. When you come to worship, you're bringing in everything that you did this week. Wherever your mind and your heart were, is adding up to your worship experience publicly. Like when I preach, everything that I've done this past week, all the sin and all the 
things controlled by the Holy Spirit, they're all here. And I bring it all here. And if I'm not walking with the Lord, it's going to show up here. But we all are like that. Your whole life, worship doesn't start when we sing the first song. Worship is, what have you been doing all week? Where's your heart been? Where's your affections been? Where's your allegiance been? Where's your time been spent? Where's your money been spent? God takes all of that into account, doesn't he? And you know what he wants in his church? He wants vibrant, thankful worshipers whose hearts are living sacrifices for him, who are willing to give and to serve and to love with no regard to the cost in themselves, but only for the benefit of others. It's agape love. James says this way. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. The word hearers in James, it's the word to audit a class. All right, so I have a student here. He takes a test. He has no choice. He comes to my class. He is going to get tested on what I teach. He is not auditing my class. He's taking it for credit. If you audit a class, do you have to take the test? No, you can just sit there. And if you audit a class, do you have to even do anything? No, you can just sit there. You're auditing. There's no accountability. James says, be doers of the word, and you're not auditing Christianity. You're you're not just listening tonight to get credit from God. You are listening to do. That is going to change us inwardly. So we're not going to make the same mistake and ask the same kind of questions the Jewish people did in Zechariah's day. Should we fast? Well, why are you fasting? Are you doing it because it makes you feel good, or are you doing it because it makes me feel good, God says? So why do we come to church? To make us feel good? Or to make him feel good? Doesn't God love throngs of worshipers? He shares his glory with none, none other. I think, it's, I think that is awesome, just to make his glory even more known. That's the goal of the church. All right, well, I could go on, and you could just f- finish reading Isaiah 1, but I have, I have my last point. Here's, my, here's the last question. God asked three questions. Why do you fast? Is it for really for me, or is it for yourself? And then he asked, why do you eat and drink and celebrate? Is it really for me, is it, or is it for yourself? Like, real quick, easy, easy uh, comparison, Christmas or Easter. Easter's coming up. Why do we celebrate Easter? Is it the Easter bunny and jelly beans and baskets? Or is it the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we, that's why we celebrate Easter. It's all about Christ. It's, it's not about the Easter bunny and whatever else goes with it. It's about Jesus Christ. And yet, I don't know, I think many churches have even veered off from that, from the, from the gospel and from the resurrection. Here's the last question. Jeremiah chapter 7. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? The question is, shouldn't God says, why do you fast? Why do you celebrate with eating and drinking? And thirdly, should you not obey my words like they used to when they were prosperous and inhabited? But because they did not did not, did not take heed to my word. They did not go to the word and, and follow it. God said, I judged them and I burned their land to a crisp. Don't, like, shouldn't you learn from the past? All right, well, my time's just about up. Can I just share one thing with you all? Do you know the temple sermon? Have you ever heard that? The temple sermon? The temple sermon is... All right, I'm going to try to do this super quick. You're going to have to do this all on your own, though, for the most part. You guys with me? 
All right, write this down, Jeremiah 7. It's a chapter everybody should know. Jeremiah 7. It is called, I think, I would call it the temple sermon. It is a sermon Jeremiah gave at the temple. Here's what he said, basically. He said, everybody, why do you go to idolatry and why do you love to sin all week? And then on Saturday, you show up at the temple and say, here's what it says in Jeremiah 7. We're at the temple, we're at the temple, we're at the temple. It's like they thought, we have a temple and we have sacrifices so we can sin all we want. God's going to forgive us. We've got the temple. That's Jeremiah 7. The people thought we can sin, sin, sin all week. We can do whatever our hearts desire as long as on Saturday we go to the temple and make it all right. What hypocrisy. And so here, the last question, God says, shouldn't you have taken heed to my word? like they did back when your land was prosperous. But it says in Jeremiah 7, they refused to take heed to God's word. So he removed them from the land. He tore the temple down. He destroyed his own city. Okay, Jeremiah 7 also says this. The people actually tested God. They said, God, you will never break your house down. We're safe. Our temple is as solid as God is. And since God is solid, he'll never destroy his own temple. He would never do that. Like, who would go and burn their own house down? You know, only a sick person, right? God will never destroy his temple. You know what God said in Jeremiah 7? All right, you guys. I've asked you with prophets rising up early, staying all day, telling you to heed my word. You have refused, refused, refused. So I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to tear my house down and destroy it. And you can't ever say, we've got the temple again because it's going to be gone. He's going to pull the rug out right from that. And he does. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. So, so now Zechariah says to the next generation, don't make the mistake of the forefathers. They set an example that was bad. Don't you do it. Take heed to God's word by faith. Live by God's word. All right? See what he's saying? Then he finishes up with this. He quotes Jeremiah 7, which is why I know he's referring to the temple sermon. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, Execute true justice, that's in Jeremiah 7. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. These are things they should have done, but they did not take heed. Therefore God tore his temple down and kicked them out. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor, let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed. They shrugged their shoulders. They stopped their ears so that they could... Can I tell you, okay, can I tell you one more thing that happened in Jeremiah 7? The children helped the moms and the dads make idols for worship. Everybody was contributing. And God said, I can't have this anymore. The whole family's gone astray. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, verse 12, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his prophet through the former, sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore, it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so they called out, I would not listen, says the Lord. Scary, isn't it? At some point, we would cry out and God would say, I was trying to get your attention for years. You never gave it to me, so I'm not listening to you anymore. Scary that God would do that, but he does. And then he says this, But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. 
Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. They brought judgment upon themselves. All right, what kind of applications quick? It's five after seven. Here's what I think. I think God hates ritual, but he loves reality in our worship, in a relationship. So check your walk. Listen, we can fake it before one another. We cannot fake it before God who knows all hearts. Right? So take time. Deal with your life. Deal with it biblically. Repent where you need to. Humble yourself where you need to. Turn to the Lord with a whole heart, just saying, Lord, fill me, use me, teach me. Let me be a part of this church that will just build up this church so more people can be reached, we can disciple more people, and then Jesus will come back and everything's done and good. But don't play the game. Don't play the game. James 1. What is, real quick, here's my last application. James 1 says, this is pure and undefiled religion. There's three things, and I preached through this a couple years ago. The whole book of James can be broken into these three areas. James says, you want pure and undefiled religion? You want to really please God so he is so delighted, he is smiling from ear to ear? There's three things we need to do. You want to number one? Keep your tongue in check. Do not have an unbridled tongue. Your speech matters. How you talk matters. So James 3 is all about the tongue. No man can control the tongue, only the Holy Spirit can. The tongue is an unruly, wicked thing. It's a little member of our body that creates whole forest fires. Control your speech. Secondly, visit widows and orphans. Care for those who can't care for themselves. It's not a social gospel. God's saying, you know, go and visit them. They have spiritual needs. They have physical needs. God has given us much. We need to give to those who don't. And third, keep yourself unspotted in the world. A controlled tongue. We care for those who are less fortunate or less blessed. And then third, be unspotted. Do not be defiled by the sins of the world. Wow, I think that's pretty clear. That's what God wants. All right? Let's, let's pray. Father, what a text. These people came with thinking they're going to get a quick yes or no and walk away. Should they fast in certain months because of great tragedies that were brought about? But God turned the tables and he asked them why they were doing what they were doing. Did they really love him? Or were they just doing it out of something that would make them feel better? So, Father, it's easy for us in the church age to do the same thing. We who have been believers for a long time, sometimes the Bible can just seem stale. Sometimes our walk with you doesn't seem fresh. I pray that you would put just a burst of energy and enthusiasm and spirit life into our Bible reading and into our prayer life and into our evangelism and into our fellowship. Father, I pray that we as a church family would take to heart the New Testament teachings for the church. I pray that we would come with hearts that are eager and ready to love and worship and show our devotion to Christ. That it would actually be worked out in our human relationships, keeping our tongue in check and visiting and caring for the widows and the poor and um, the orphans, and then also keeping ourselves unspotted in this world. 
So, Father, thank you so much for making it clear in the church that we are your bride, purchased by grace through faith, and um, we also have a responsibility. So I just pray that you'll continue to bless this body of believers, help us to continue to gather with authentic hearts and lives, that we might be a pleasing aroma to you. So bless the church this week as we go about our ministries and our lives. Bless our families. Keep us safe. And Father, bring us back together Wednesday for prayer and Saturday for fellowship at the Haberman home. Thank you again, Father. You are awesome in our sight. We love you. We love the Lord Jesus, and we love the Holy Spirit. Amen.